And uh, can you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 22? Matthew chapter 22. Now, can you can you hear me clearly? Yep. Okay. Matthew 22. And we're looking this morning at verses 34 to 46. On your way in, you receive a couple of uh, sheets of paper. And one of them is this one. And on the inside of this one, there's an outline of where we're going. Those of you who are taking notes can, can use that, and those of you who aren't can also use that to work out how long you have to go. Matthew 22, beginning from verse 34, and I'll leave us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us that you have shown to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you uh, for the opportunity now to uh, hear what you have to say to us in him. And we pray that as we um, see and hear what the Lord Jesus has said and done, uh, you would help us respond in love and obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the week that leads up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's been answering hostile questions. Questions designed by Jewish leaders either to trap him or embarrass him. Two weeks ago we saw how the Pharisees attacked. Last week we saw an attack from the Sadducees. But each time Jesus had turned the tables on them. Not only answered their questions but made a teaching point and attacked their positions all at the same time. Now, in Kung Fu movies, bad guys attack the, uh, the hero one at a time. Now, you knock one opponent down, and then you turn around, there's the other opponent coming to you. And then you knock him down, what happens? The first one has gone up again, and off you go again. Right? Well, it's like that here. But since the Sadducees were silenced in the passage we looked at last week, it's the Pharisees' turn again to come up and try and topple Jesus. Verse 34, we see what they do. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, on the one hand, they would have been glad that the Sadducees were silenced. The point, on the point that Jesus silenced the Sadducees on, they, they actually agreed with him. On the other hand, they were also trying to trap Jesus. He would have, just, he would have been just as much a threat to them as he had been to the Sadducees. And so they gathered together. They... they uh, they had this mini-conference to try and work out what to do. And the outcome of this mini-conference is described in the next verse, verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, when I first read this, I thought, you know, they sent a lawyer to him, they had their meeting place in the Pharisee headquarters, and then they they send the lawyer off and, and see what he says. But if we look at verse 41 of our passage... They are still gathered together. And then in verse uh, 41, in fact, he asked them a question. Right? So, it's me, so it seems that they're meeting together, their little conference was in the same place where, where Jesus was. Now, I've got to take verse 34 to 40 and verse 41 to 46 as separate, as separate incidences. This is all connected. So they're probably still in the same place, where, they're probably in the same place where Jesus was, probably in the temple. And so now we've got the picture. These group of Pharisees gathered together in one corner 
working out what to do. And somewhere or other, Jesus is there. And as a group, they're facing Jesus. And one of them, who is a lawyer, that is an expert in the Old Testament law, asks Jesus a question. Once again, he's not doing it to find out the answer. Not doing it because he realizes that Jesus is the one who gave the law in the first place. Verse 35 says, he asked the question to test Jesus. And here's the question. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the great commandment? And Jesus' answer, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second, I will come back to that second in a moment. This is the great and first commandment. Now that's what Jesus always said, didn't he? When he was asked that kind of question. Most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the chief commandment, the most important point in the whole law. They don't ask for commandment number two, but Jesus gives it to them anyway. In verse 39, he continues. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What then is the greatest commandment? Love God, and then love your neighbor. And Jesus says, that's what whole law and the prophets hang on. That's what they depend on. Everything else comes from these two commandments to love. And the law and the prophets are there to tell them how to love God and how to love their neighbor. And if people really loved God and really loved their neighbor, they would automatically fulfill all the requirements of the law. Now that was a good answer to a good question. But Matthew tells us, he specifically tells us, the Pharisee asked Jesus this question in order to test him. So we need to think to ourselves, why is this a trick question? Seems like a, a good one. Rabbis debated among themselves, which were the weightier things of the law, which were the lighter. One of the Pharisees hoping that, that Jesus would say something like, oh, this is the greatest commandment, and these are not so important ones, so don't have to worry about these. Surely someone with the kind of wisdom Jesus has just shown in the last two, two episodes would, wouldn't fall into that kind of trap. So why is this a trick question? Well, my little theory, for what it's worth, is that this was the opening question which leads to a trap which they never got to because immediately after Jesus gives his answer, he asks them back a question. I'll show you. They knew what he was going to say here. He's spoken about this before. They knew he was going to say, love God, love your neighbor. Exactly what he said. And then they'd ask a follow-up question that would get him into trouble. Now, remember, last time Jesus had spoken to a lawyer about the great two commandments, he had gone on to say some very controversial things in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Contrary to popular thinking, the parable of the Good Samaritan isn't just a good example of an 
you know, to 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 to, to uh, not just a good example of, of 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 what we should do, but it's a it's a it's a sharp redefinition of who one's neighbour is. Remember, Jesus asked at the end of the parable, the Good Samaritan, who was it that proved to be a neighbour to the one who was robbed? And the real neighbour wasn't the priest, wasn't the Levite, but the Samaritan. Real neighbour is not necessarily your fellow Israelite. It's someone who shows the God's character of mercy. Now the incident in which Jesus answered that question is reported in Luke's Gospel and happened on the road to Jerusalem. Perhaps in a relatively quiet setting. It may be that the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to repeat it here in the temple in front of the priests and the Levites whom he implied were no longer the man's neighbours. Yet that would get him into trouble, wouldn't it? But before they can ask their follow-up question, Jesus asked them a question. It's not about who is my neighbour, which is the second commandment. It's about who is my God, which is the first. Let me show you. Verse 41. The Pharisees were gathered together. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus answered them, asked them a question, saying, who, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the word Christ means the anointed one. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word which means Messiah. God's promised king. See, God had promised a king who would come and rule his people. Not only Israel, that this, this king would rule the whole world. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, What do you think about God's promised king? Whose son is he? Well, whose son did the Old Testament say the promised king was going to be. In 2 Samuel 7, God had promised David that he would always have a son on the throne. That his dynasty would last forever. And so even when the prophets were later predicting the end of the nation of Judah, they predicted that one day God would restore that dynasty. The prophet Isaiah predicted that a shoot would grow from the stump of David. Isaiah 11 verse 1 on the screen. Jesse Jesse was David's father. And so he saying, look, even though David's house has been cut down, like a tree that's been felled, a shoot will grow up against from the stump. And you can see from verse 2, the Spirit of God will rest upon him. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness shall judge the poor, decide for equity, for the meek of the earth. With the breath of his mouth, slay the wicked. This is a king who will rule not only the land, but the whole world. The prophet Ezekiel had also written about the shepherds of Israel. Shepherds who were fleecing their flock instead of taking care of them. But one day, God was going to restore his people and he was going to set David over them. Not the literal David, but the son, his heir. The one, the one who was promised in 2 Samuel 7. Whose son is the Messiah? Whose descendant is the king whom God has promised? Well, the obvious answer that the Pharisees gave, the answer that every Jewish schoolboy knew better than his three times table, the answer at the end of verse 42. They said to him, the son of David. Right. Okay, got that clear? And he says to them, verse 42, or verse 43, he says to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, 
The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now that's a quote from Psalm 110, which uh, we, we read earlier. Now incidentally, before we look at that quote, notice how Jesus describes the authorship. David wrote it, he says, but he wrote it in the Spirit, or by the Spirit. Right, so these are the Spirit's words, and they are equally David's words. David wrote as, as carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit led David to call the Messiah Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put my en your enemies under your feet. Let's have a look at Psalm 110 again. Uh, it's up on the screen. That's that? Right. The Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule! in the midst of your enemies. There's the, there's the, there's the command. This is the, this is the, uh, it's uh, talking about the, the king, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, what it says in the Old Testament, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, as you see in verse 1 there, yeah, in our English Bibles, refers there to Yahweh, right, the God of Israel. And the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to this person, this Messiah, who is David's Lord, sit at my right hand until, which is the, the ultimate place of power in the universe, until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I crush all opposition to you. That, so those who resist your rule are like, like you know, like a poof you can put your, put, your, put, your, put your feet up on. In other words, until your triumph and your victory are absolutely complete and you rule from Zion over all your enemies. Now, this psalm, Jesus says, is referring to the Christ. And so the Christ is the one that David calls, my Lord. Now, the word Lord, can we just, thanks. The word Lord uh, is used for, used for a couple of things uh, in, in the scriptures. Right? Firstly, that's okay, you look here. <laughs> Firstly, it's a way of showing deference to another human being. Okay? When Sarah calls Abraham my Lord, she's showing big respect for him. But secondly, it is also used for God himself. Over and over again, God is referred to as the Lord. Both in the Hebrew Old Testament and in the Greek translation of it. In fact, so what David says the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Messiah, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's calling the Messiah Lord. And then Jesus in verse 45. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How could it be his son? If you, if you call someone my Lord, you're paying great respect to them. A father should never do that to his son. It's the wrong way around. It's not appropriate to call your son Lord. And if it's not appropriate to call your son Lord, then it's not appropriate to call a grandson Lord because you're greater than your son and your son is greater than his son. And if you do that again and again, you'll find that there's 28 generations between David and Jesus. There's 28 steps of greatness between David and the generation of his day. David is the greater one 28 times over. 
because the son of David, or the descendant of, so the son of David and the descendant of David must be must be lesser than he. So again, the question: If David calls his son, if David calls his Messiah Lord, how can he be his son? How can he be his descendant? Doesn't make sense, does it? Unless there is more to it. Unless there is something more to the Messiah than being the son of David. Unless when David calls him Lord, he's not just showing deference to him as another human being. But he's using that word Lord in the other way. But that would be unthinkable. For then the Messiah would not only be David's son, but David's God. And there's no way the Pharisees would want to go there. And so verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that way, that day, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It was always already obvious to the Pharisees that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. But now if the Messiah is claiming to be God, then Jesus is making that claim as well. Jesus has already talked about who is my neighbor on another occasion. Now he's telling them who is my God. But isn't it clever the way he does it? He doesn't come out and say, look, I'm God, worship me. He does make far more direct claims than in other places, but here in this situation he holds back. If he'd made the claims so more directly, they probably would have killed him there and then, Roman law or no Roman law. But he tells them by asking them this question. A question that would lead them to this very conclusion if they took the Old Testament seriously and thought it through with an open mind with reference to Jesus. And if they did, they would have been convicted of their sin. See, the Pharisees, they were sticklers for the letter of the law. But the greatest command of all, the most important command of all, was to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind. And even if they didn't see who he was, at least they could do was to love him as a neighbor. But instead, they tried to trap him and have him killed. Well, what do we learn for ourselves from this passage? First of all, we see once again the wisdom of Jesus. We've been marveling at that for the past three weeks, haven't we? Seeing how he's handled all the Pharisees and Sadducees had to throw against him, and we see it again here. He escapes the trap set for him by his opponents, teaches us valuable lessons about the law shows why they're wrong, why they're spending the keep of law, all, all at once. When it comes to a wise teacher, no one can beat the Lord Jesus. Secondly, we are reminded of the commandment to love. I want to spend a bit of time on this. Jesus said the most important command is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. And all the law and the prophets hang on. Let me 
Let me show you why. See, you express love differently depending on, on who the object of your love is. That's, that's only appropriate, isn't it? If you love your dog, you'll give it pet food every day, take it for walks around the neighborhood on a leash. But you wouldn't do that to your boyfriend or your husband, no matter how much you love him. Because they're not dogs. The right way to express our love to God, the appropriate way to express our love to God, is to obey Him. Because He is God, and He deserves our full obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's not always the most appropriate way to express love to each other, but that is the way we show our love to God. So love for God leads to obedience to God. Love for God leads to obedience to God. And conversely, disobedience to God is a symptom of a lack of love for God. If we truly love God, then we would obey Him as He deserves to be obeyed. Yet sin, sin in the end, is a failure to treat God properly. It is a failure to love God with all our heart and therefore to obey Him. All of us fall short in that way. None of us love God with all our heart and all our soul and strength. All of us fail. The Old Testament Israel fail. They had a law on tablets of stone, but it wasn't written on their hearts. Tablets of stone couldn't motivate them to love. They only condemn. Before we knew Jesus, we didn't really love God either. We were in the same position as them. Had law on the outside. Hearts that didn't love God. Hearts that wanted to be our own boss. Hearts that loved ourselves or something else, anything, except God our Creator. We're in a different position now, as we'll see in a moment, but, but even now, every time we do something wrong, every time we, we sin, it is because we love something or someone more than we love God. And even so, we continue to sin. And every time we do it, it's because something or someone else takes the place of God as our first love. If we really love God with all our hearts and souls and minds, then we would obey Him with all our hearts and souls and minds. So every sin we commit, in the end, actually comes back down to breaking this first and great command. That's why Jesus it all hangs on this. Disobedience to God is a symptom of our lack of love for God. On the other hand, true obedience to God is motivated by love for God. Because true obedience to God is not just a matter of keeping the rules. God's law is there to show us how to express our love, but it doesn't help us to love. True obedience is not just a matter of keeping laws and regulations. No, I haven't slept with anyone, haven't stolen from anyone, I went to church on Sunday, so I'm an obedient Christian. Not necessarily. All those external things are important, but our motivation is important as well. We must obey God, not just because we've been taught to obey the rules. Not just because our church or our peers or our families tell us we must. Not just because we are afraid he will punish us if we don't. So all those things may be appropriate. 
But in the end, we must love God. We must obey God because we love Him. Then and only then are we obeying the first commandment. The right motivation for obedience is love. True obedience to God is motivated by love for God. But our love for God is only a response to God's love for us. We love John writes because he first loved us. Paul says the love of God is poured into our hearts by his Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And the Spirit points us to the place where God's love is seen at its very clearest. He points us to the cross. For on the cross we see the full extent of God's love. We see the Lord Jesus, God himself, come to save his people, suffering for us there. We see him dying in our place, bearing our punishment for our sins, bearing the pain of what for us would be, would be an eternity of suffering. And he did it willingly. Yes, he did it for the Father, and he did it for us. That is how much God loves us. And friends, the more we appreciate His love, the more we will love Him. The more we realize what He did for us there, the deeper will be our devotion to Him. The more we know God's love, the more we will long to obey. True obedience to God comes from true love for God. And true love for God comes from God's love for us expressed in Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus shows us God's love and stimulates us to love Him in return. However, it does more than that. The death of Jesus also makes a genuine response of love possible. Let's explain what I mean. We cannot truly obey God from a true love for God when we are obeying the law as a means of getting right with God. But in the death of Jesus, God has rescued us from that. Our obedience to the law has got nothing to do whether we go to heaven or not. We will not be justified, we will not be declared right with God by the works of the law. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. And so we no longer seek to obey God in order to be saved. For if we are doing good works simply in order to save our scalp, then we are no longer doing it out of love for God. But the fact that God has saved us first, the fact that God has forgiven us up front, the fact that God has already pronounced those who are in Christ not guilty, means that we don't have to obey the law in order to be saved. And so spirit-led obedience can really be a response of love for what God has done for us. And so because of what Jesus has done, we can love truly. The death of Jesus makes a genuine response of obedient love possible. The fact that we can love God truly doesn't mean that 
we now love God perfectly. Our love will still be short. We will never in this age be able to fully keep this great and first commandment. In this age, love and therefore obedience will always be a battle. In this age, the Spirit leads us to love God by showing us how God loved us first, pointing us to God's love in Christ, writing God's law in our hearts, giving us the motivation to obey and love. But we don't just have the Spirit, we have the flesh, don't we? We have our sinful natures, our old selves, which leads us back into the old ways of forgetting God and loving myself. But legalism is a, a desperate attempt to please Him. And so we struggle to follow the Spirit and to love God properly. We are in this battle. A battle to love. In this world, we, we can love God truly. But we will not love God perfectly. And so our obedience will reflect that. But the day will come when this will be no more. In the new creation, our love and therefore our obedience will be complete. Our sinful nature will be no more and we will be able to love God wholeheartedly. We will indeed love Him with all our heart, none, mind and strength and our love will be perfect and therefore our obedience will be perfect. We live in perfect relationship with God forever. Sometimes people ask if there'll be free will in the new creation. The answer, of course, is yes. Perfectly free. Because if we really love God, then we are free to do as we please. We are free to obey Him. The extent of our freedom matches the extent of our love. If we perfectly love, then we'll be perfectly free to express that love in perfect obedience. We wouldn't want to do anything else. As we wait for the new creation, how shall we then live? The answer, of course, to obey God, to live godly lives. And the right motivation for that comes from love. It means the way to learn to obey God, the way to learn to obey God, is first of all to learn to love Him. We learn to obey God now, by first learning to love Him. Because if we get that right, then everything else follows. A wise theologian once said, Love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. Now, at first you might think, hang on, that's not right. Uh, and maybe that's sometimes bad advice because we trick ourselves, our hearts are deceitful, and we think to trick ourselves into thinking we're loving God and actually we're loving something else. But in a profound way, he is right, isn't he? If we really love God, that's all that matters. Because if we really love God, then what pleases us will be what pleases him. If we really love God, then our heart's desire will for him will be for him to be known and glorified. If we really love God, we will want to obey him. If we really love God, we will long to be the kind of people he wants us to be. 
True obedience brings from love. The Pharisees telling people, do, 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 do. Why? Because of the law. Because we said so. The motivation of love behind it. Jesus taught us to love, enables us to love, and in doing so, the law is fulfilled. True obedience springs from love. So you want to be someone who obeys God, then learn to love God. And if you want to love God, then you keep looking back at His love for you. And if you want to see His love for you, keep going back to the cross. That's the center. That's where it all starts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's an extension of the first, isn't it? It has to be. But Jesus doesn't say, love the Lord your God with 75% of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, that's 25% left, so it's 12.5% each. Right now? He says, love God with all your heart. So where's the room to love your neighbor as yourself? It's got to be that loving our neighbor is part of loving God. It comes under it. The God whom we love with all our hearts is the God who calls on us to love our neighbor as part and parcel of our response of love and therefore obedience to him. Loving our neighbor means seeking their good, serving them in time of need, trying to do what's best for them, applying the golden rule Jesus taught us back in Matthew 7. Do to others what you want them to do to you. It's an active thing, not just a passive thing. Law says, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Love for neighbor covers that. It doesn't just cover that. It covers all kinds of things that no legislation can, can possibly make you do. Being generous with other people. Forgiving those who wrong you. Spending time to encourage the weak. Sacrificing yourself for the sake of others. That can never be specifically forced upon people by law. Don't do it because some piece of legislation says that you must. Do it because you love God. Therefore, seek to love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, treat him or her in the way you'd want to be treated. If you were your client, would you want to be overbilled? Or would you want to be charged fairly and honestly? Then charge people fairly and honestly. If you were your secretary, would you like to be piled up with so much work that you couldn't possibly do it and then told off when you can't? Or would you like to be consulted about how, you, how you're doing and how you manage? And treat your secretary as you'd want to be treated if you were her. Teachers, put yourself in place of your students. Doctors in the place of your patients. Lawyers in the place of your clients. Government servants in the place of the public. Parents in the place of your children. Husbands in the place of your wives. Wives in the place of your husbands. Managers in the place of your subordinates. Workers in the place of your colleagues. Producers in the place of consumers. Treat other people as you'd want to be treated if you're in their shoes. And think about this. If you were lost in sin, 
wouldn't you want someone to come and tell you about the Saviour who died for your forgiveness? And wouldn't you want them to do it in a loving and gentle and respectful and yet persistent way? And if so, then do that for someone else. Love your neighbour as yourself. Which brings us to our final point. We observe the wisdom of Jesus. We examine the commandment and love. But the main point of this passage is about the people's response to Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, the command to love God with all your heart is, is prefaced in the following way. It's in Deuteronomy 6, coming up on the screen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It's not any old God that the Israelites were called upon to love. They were called to love Yahweh, the Lord. And that's the same for us. It's not a generic idea of God that we're called to love. A postulation of our imagination or our culture. We are to love God, the true God, as he has revealed himself to us. And the New Testament has shown us that Yahweh, the Lord, has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very message of Jesus to the Pharisee was this, I am Yahweh whom you are to love. Love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. But that message, it is not veiled anymore. It is absolutely clear. Jesus is God, God the Son, whom we are called to love with all our hearts and therefore obey. He is the Saviour who died for us on the cross and rose again. He is the King, the Messiah, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are put down. And the most important commandment of God is to love him and therefore submit to him. Give him his Jesus. Will you love Jesus, the Messiah, and therefore unlike the Pharisees, obey him as God and King. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have made him the Lord and King and Ruler of all. And we thank you especially that you've shown us your love in him and what he has done for us. We thank you for that love that you've shown us so clearly on the cross. Thank you for your spirit that points us to that, enables us to see and understand and appreciate for ourselves the great love that you've shown us there. Our Father, we pray that in response to your love, we would be people who love you, who love you more and more. And in response to that, to seek to obey you. Lord, indeed we want to honor you. Indeed we want to give you our life.
our heart, our soul. Indeed, we want to live for you alone. So that every step we take, each moment we are awake, we, we live for you. And we want to do that because we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.